Open up your Bibles to uh, the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. We're going to put it up on the screen, at least most of the scripture <coughs> and the main points of the uh, message. But each week, if you do have a Bible, please bring it with you. And uh, we believe in getting into the Word of God and trying to figure this thing out according to God's Word. We're in this series called uh, The Gospel for Believers. Some of you go, what do you mean? I thought the gospel was for unbelievers. You know, we talk about going out and sharing the gospel, or we talk about, you know, uh, people needing the gospel, and they do, and those things should be done. But I submit to you that all of us sin every single day and that every single one of us, whether believers or not, need the gospel in this bigger sense in which I tend to convey the gospel. I think of the gospel not simply as, in a sense, the plan of salvation, like i.e., how do you become a Christian. I think of the gospel in a much broader sense Everything from eternity past, from God creating the world to man's fall to Christ coming to redeem us and one day the world will be restored. This great big sense of the gospel and what the gospel means to us. The, you might call it the creative plan of God. But in this series, the gospel for believers, we have looked at things like this. Here's, here's kind of how it goes, when I, what I mean by preaching the gospel to ourselves. If I treat my wife bad, which I know is really, really rare and doesn't very seldom happens, right, baby? <laughs> How can she put up with someone like me? How can she put up with someone who's treating her bad? She needs to preach the gospel to herself and say, well, what do I deserve? Because in your flesh, what you'll do is you'll say, I don't deserve to be treated like that. I don't deserve to be talked to like that. But the truth is, if you slow down and you look at life in light of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the big picture of God, what you actually deserve and what I actually deserve, we don't deserve salvation and we don't deserve honoring treatment at all. We deserve hell. So what do I deserve? Well, I, I deserve hell, but in Christ, I don't get that. I get salvation. Therefore, I can rejoice even if my wife or husband does treat me bad. It changes our whole perspective. Sometimes we think of the gospel as, a, as the plan of salvation, and we kind of limit it to being kind of like a diving board. If this were a great big pool, and that represents all of God's blessings and all of God's plan, we would call the gospel kind of like the diving board. You know, well, that's how we get into the pool. But the gospel is not just the diving board. The gospel is the pool. All of God's blessings, all of which we have in Christ. And so with that in mind, I want you to open up your Bible <clears throat> as we talk about a heart for the poor. How do we look at them? How do we preach the gospel to ourselves when we see people that are struggling financially, in poverty, with hunger. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll see how the gospel would have us to treat folks. Now, I need to give you some background before we start reading that passage, because if you just jump right into 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you really won't understand much of it. So let me give you a little background. 
The guy who wrote this was a man named the Apostle Paul. He was the chief or one of the chief leaders in the early church, going around on missionary journeys, starting churches in areas where uh, the good news about Jesus had never been heard. They didn't even have the Bible assembled. And he was uh, collecting some money for one of these groups of people. The church in Jerusalem, Christians in Jerusalem, where the Lord was crucified and buried and resurrected, was an incredibly, incredibly poor church. Their, their poverty was staggering. We couldn't imagine it. And there was famine, and they were incredibly poor. And that was really personal to Paul because Paul was Jewish. And, and so he had to be careful when he's going out now to these other churches that he started, and he's trying to raise funds for his own people. It could have looked very wrong. And he wanted his motives to be very clear. And you're going to pick that up in his language to these Corinthians when he doesn't command, even he actually says, I'm not commanding you, I'm suggesting these things. Things he's not saying you ought to do, he's saying you should do. And as we talk about these principles of how the gospel invades our life and produces in us generosity, I think especially with all the false teaching that's out there today and all the money-hungry liars and cheats that are on TV, I need to be very careful. I want you to hear my motives. Uh, I want you to know that you will hear words like should and suggest as we talk about principles of generosity, not demands of it, but principles of it. When the gospel invades my life, what does it naturally, naturally produce? You see, Paul had a deep, daily concern for all of the churches, and especially those that he had founded, because, man, his heart was there. These were people that he had led to Christ, and they were now involved, but they were suffering, and the church in Jerusalem was incredibly poor, persecuted heavily, lost every bit of income. They would have been cast out of public life. Most of their families would have had a funeral for them when they came from Judaism into Christianity ostracized, cut off, and it wiped Paul out that they were suffering so bad. Now, about a year or so before Paul wrote this book, 2 Corinthians, he had launched this major fundraising project throughout all the churches that he had started, raising money to help those poor Christians in Jerusalem. And this church that he wrote this letter to, the Corinthian church, the church at Corinth, he, man, they were incredibly well-to-do, super rich church. And about a year ago, they agreed to take an offering. They said, yes, we'll help out, and we're going to send it to the church at Jerusalem through Paul. Now, about a year has passed, and Paul has a helper who's there in Corinth at that church, and uh, his name is Titus. There's a book of the Bible after him. Titus reports to Paul, we're ready to do this. So when Paul writes this letter back to them, he wants to accomplish many things, but amongst this, uh, concerning this, he wants to accomplish two primary things. Number one, he knew they had money. He, in a noble way, wanted this offering to be significant, right? They had the power, the God-given power, to alleviate a lot of human suffering. And so he doesn't want to be an idiot. He doesn't want to blow this thing. He wants to make it 
what God wants it to be. And he knows the suffering is substantial. The offering can be substantial. But the next thing he wanted it to be is not only a great offering, he wanted it to be completely voluntary because of his position. He wanted it to be not because he's commanding it. And to accomplish both things in this passage, what he does is he gives them an example of another church who had already given and contributed to the offering, the church in Macedonia. Now, if you want to talk about poor, they were really poor. And Paul was worried also, so he gives them this, this illustration of how they gave, this poor church. He's trying to motivate them to give. But he also worried, Paul did in a, in a way that, that, that it's been a year since you guys promised. And I can just imagine he's saying, you know, I bet they haven't put money aside regularly for this. And this is going to help the poor. But he wasn't concerned that they hadn't been putting aside money regularly for his own pockets because it wasn't going to go into his. His concerns were a whole lot different than a lot of pastors you hear today. Paul was worried that if they didn't, hadn't planned their giving, now listen, that now knowing that he and Titus have talked and it's time to give, Paul's real concern is that some of them might give money they don't even have. Because they weren't all rich. They made this promise. Oh no, I haven't planned. Now it's time to give. Let's give something we don't. And Paul said, I don't want you to do that. Because he was afraid that if they gave more maybe than they could have given, more than they had been blessed with, that it might produce, well, a grudge. You know, Lord, I promised, but I wish that Paul wouldn't have come up at the last minute. But there it is anyway, I promised. Right? No attitude for giving. No attitude for giving. Paul was concerned by, about that. And Paul was, was not wanting that to happen. He was also concerned that people might accuse him and his helpers of abusing it. So the great apostle really takes chapter 7 chapter 8 and chapter 9 and he lays out a lot of good guidelines for them on giving and we're not near having time to cover three chapters so I want to cover in chapter 8 kind of the summary in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 8 and we're going to draw out from that text after I read it we're going to read it and then we're going to draw out from the text some incredible principles for what I want to call look right here at me Gospel generosity. When I say that, here's what I mean. How should I, as one who have been saved by the grace of God, how, what, are scripture, what does Scripture really say about how generosity ought to be exhibited in my life? Not what does the preacher say, not what does Benny Hinn say, not what does Kenneth Copeland say, not what does Fred Price say all TV preachers, but what does God's Word say? What effect should the gospel naturally have in my life as to generosity when the poor need help? Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, 
We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, these were poor churches who had given. That in a great trial of affliction, <clears throat> the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now, just one interesting side note where he says their deep poverty, that's a word, a Greek, a Greek word from where we get our word bathosphere. And what it is, years ago, uh, it literally was used, a Jacques Cousteau kind of word, when you go down to the ocean depths and it's so deep that you have to have like a uh, submersible. That's where we get our word from. He, when he says how they in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty, those things abounded in the riches of their liberality or giving. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and even beyond their ability, they were freely willing. They had contributed. They implored us with much urgency that we would receive their gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints, not only as we had hoped, but they also gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, that is, he wanted to take this offering so he would complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. It's amazing that he calls generosity a grace. Now notice verse 8. I don't speak by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this, I give what? Command? No. I give what? Advice. You may have a little, but yeah. Again, I'm not forcing this down your throats, but in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began, they began to take this offering, and we're desiring to do a year ago, but now you must also what? Complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it and to want to help, there may also be a completion out of what you actually have. For if there is first a willing mind, when we give, this is what he's saying, if there's first a willing mind, that gift is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others would be eased and you burdened. It would have been very easy, wouldn't it, for the Corinthians to say, yeah, you know, I know what he's doing. They're poor and we're rich and he expects us to catch up all the slack. He says, no, I, I don't want you to give above what you have. I don't mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened, but by an equality. Now, I think that's interesting. What he's saying is not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. 
but by an equality that now at this time your abundance, he's speaking of financially, may supply their lack and their abundance that was of joy and being filled with the Spirit, having joy in the Lord, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, but he who gathered little had no lack. He's referring back to the manna in the Old Testament on Israel's journey out of Egypt. So let me just give you very quickly today some principles. When the gospel invades your life and mine, how that should just naturally, normally, biologically produce generosity in our life so that the preacher doesn't have to beat you up constantly, okay? <laughs> that sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? All right, number one, first principle that comes out of this passage, right out of the text, gospel generosity. You might say biblical generosity springs when, from when I experience the gospel in my own life. The gospel in my life, the grace of God in my life will produce this. And that is the wellspring of it. Notice what he says in verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God that was bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded in the riches of of their liberality. He gives really a formula there. It, it's really crazy. It says, if you break it down, they experienced, these Macedonian Christians did, first part of the equation, God's grace. And after they came and experienced God's grace, they experienced something else, great affliction. So you got God's grace plus great affliction, and then they had deep poverty is the next part of the equation. So you've got God's grace plus great affliction plus deep poverty, which I don't know to you and me the sum of that would be. For me, I, if I go, I gave my heart to Jesus and I have great affliction and great poverty, I'd, I would say it would be equals questions. Like, I accepted Jesus. I'm trying to do the right thing. Why am I now suffering? He says that's not what it produced in them. He says God's grace plus great affliction, plus deep poverty, unspeakable poverty, produced, listen, equals abundant joy and generosity. How in the world can you be so poor that he uses a word that speaks of a submersible craft going down so deep into the deepest, darkest black ocean that we use that word later to, to, to that's how deep it's, it, Paul didn't know that, but he's using the deepest word he can get to say, they had this kind of poverty. But because they had experienced the grace of God, they still exhibited incredible generosity. I'm telling you, generosity is not because the pastor pushes or because anybody pushes or because you get guilt or anything else. It's because you preach the gospel to yourself and you say, when I was lost, when I was poor in spirit, how did God treat me? He gave me the riches. When he who was rich became poor, that I and him might become rich, how can I not help others who are poor? So you get it, gospel generosity, real generosity, maybe I should just say biblical generosity, springs from experience in the grace of God in my life. 
Second principle. Biblical generosity is to be in proportion to my means. I'm probably going to make people on both sides of the aisle of this issue <laughs> angry right now, but that's okay. If I come down where the scripture comes down, that's what matters. I want you to look at verse 3 and 4 as we think about this biblical, true biblical generosity as God would have us to have really is in proportion to my means. If you look at verse 3, you'll see it. If I can get back over to it. Paul says this about those Macedonians. I bear witness that according to their what? Ability. Yes, and even what? Even beyond their ability, they were freely willing. They implored us with much urgency. Those are strong words. He's saying, what Paul is saying is, they were so poor, basically, if you read other places, you'll find he went to them, and they said, we've heard about the believers in Jerusalem, and here, we want to give. And Paul looks at him, and he says, you don't have anything. You're poor yourselves. I can't take that. Do you know I've been there before? I traveled to India. I went to a church in an industrial city named Kampur, so dirty, so lost, you can't believe how many sick people and the Christians are ostracized and they don't have anything. And part of my testimony, I told them about what God was doing to the church here and we told them that they were, we were getting ready to build. And I got back and it had been a month or so. One of our missionaries, we were Skyping with him over, bringing him into the service this guy was a member of our church, but he was in India full-time now. He said, by the way, Pastor, I've got someone there in the service, and I gave them a gift to give to you. Sounds like he was playing Titus. <laughs> person came walking and brought up to me a check for $46 and some change. I cannot remember what it was. I said, Scott, what, what is this for? Doing it live in a service, you know what he said? The Good Shepherd Church in India heard about what God was doing there in your church and they gave their entire weekly offering because they want to be a part in what God's doing in America and I literally my first thought was I can't even take this like I won't take this a woman had brought me bananas at the end of one of the services there she knew I liked bananas plus I didn't tell them but they're safe to eat there So she came forward that Sunday and brought a few bananas and laid them at my feet. And I said, no, not, not given to me. And the pastor leaned over and he said, sir, this all she had. That's the way he said it. This all she had is like Bible days. She giving what she has. I tell you, I never ate three or four bananas, so treasure wise in my life they gave they wanted to give they wanted to be a part but what did she give she couldn't give diamonds what did she give she couldn't give money what did she give she gave according to her means it's in proportion to my means God doesn't expect I will say this today God doesn't expect everyone in this church or any church to give the same amount of money to a cause I am to give in proportion 
to my ability as God has blessed me. Certainly a widow, single mom in a church, someone with physical limitations and financial strappings would not be required or even expected by God to give the same amount, the same dollar amount as a wealthy businesswoman with a load of surplus. He reinforces this if you look at verses 12 and 13. Now we're just talking about what the Lord would have us to do. So look at, and by the way, it's one of the reasons, just relax and breathe deep. That's why we already taken the offering. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not heading somewhere, okay? <laughs> just want you to just relax. Look at, look at the last part of, uh, actually look at verse 11. Paul says, now you must complete the doing of it, that is the taking of this offering, that as there was a readiness to desire it, now there may also be a completion out of what you what? Out of what you have. For if there's first a willing mind, it is accepted, that is the gift is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he or she does not have. I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened. Uh, just this fascinating passage where he is saying that gospel giving is in proportion to your means. As the Lord blesses you, you lay by, you plan it, and you bring it as the Lord leads. Third principle. Biblical generosity is the result of first giving myself to the Lord. Now, I don't honestly think you can separate between the two, and I'll tell you why. But if you look at verses 5 and 7, you'll see it. Paul says, they gave not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Do you see that? There's a process here. They first gave themselves to the Lord, the Macedonians, and then they gave to us by the will of God. Now, do you see who is really behind biblical generosity? Uh, it's the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord, and then they gave to us by the will of the Lord. They gave themselves to the Lord. God spoke to them. And they moved on the will of God. That's why he says in verse 6, So we urge Titus that as he had begun to take an offering with you, so to speak, I'm adding a few words, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, because the Corinthians had gifts, didn't they? They had all the spiritual gifts. They had all the charismata but as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, he says, in your love for us. You need to see that you abound in this grace also. So they first, these Macedonian believers gave themselves to the Lord. That's primary. And you're giving to, poor, to the poor and to the needs of those in the world. will never be right until you first give your heart to the Lord. That's primary. They submitted themselves fully to Christ, and as part of that, they submitted their finances to him. And, and simply, the truth is, you can't submit yourself fully to the Lord if your finances aren't submitted to him. I, I don't care how godly or how much you attend church. If it, Let me just ask, there's a big part of your life if your financial world is not under his authority. Uh, are finances a big part of your life? Does money play a big part in your life? Sure it does. Do you have to pay bills? 
Sure you do. What do you pay it with? Money. Uh, do you buy clothes? Do clothes cost? Yes. Uh, do you buy food? Yes. Do, does food cost? Yes. Uh, what does it take? Money. What do you buy it with? What, do you have to pay for a place to live? Certainly you do. And what do you pay for it with? Money. Finances are not just a little small area of our life. They're a huge. They invade our home, our food, our clothes, our everything. And so it's impossible, impossible, impossible for me to say, Lord, I have committed my entire life to you, but I'm not, not, not really that part. If that part is not committed, your whole life isn't really committed. Paul, uh, Paul restates it in chapter 9, verse 13. If you want to look there, you may, but I'll just read it to you. Paul says this, Your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul would have been amazed, blown away if those Macedonian believers simply weighed in with anything because they were so poor. That would have been a significant demonstration of God's, <coughs> of God's grace in their life. They were so poor. But they did a lot better than that. They had completely dedicated themselves to the Lord. If you're struggling with helping the poor, with contributing to God's work, get the first issue fig, uh, solved. Just submit yourself to the Lord. In fact, I would say whatever issue you're struggling with is really because you're not submitted to the Lord. If you're untrue to your spouse, it's because you're committing adultery on Jesus. If you're not true to your church, it's because you're committing adultery against Jesus. If you're not, if you lie at work, it's really because you're lying to God. It all springs from having it right with Him first. Amen? All right, principle number four, biblical generosity, real generosity. And what I mean by this is spirit-led, spirit-driven, whatever you want to call it. It's a result of the gospel, but biblical generosity is a test for my love for Christ. It's a test of my love for Christ and others. I love verse 8 where Paul says, I, I, I'm not speaking by commandment. But he says, but I am. He's very clear. I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Hmm, what is he saying? Well, the New Living Testament actually translates this very good when it says, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. When I told that story just a moment ago about Good Shepherd Church, what a poor, poor, financially bunch of folks. But when I told that, this, you, this place just went, oh, like, wow. You know why? None of you questioned their love when they did that selfless act. None of you. In fact, 
that selfless act verified for you. You, you. Some of you probably said, wow, man, those people love the Lord, right? That's because biblical generosity from the heart is a test. And they passed the test. It's not the only test. There are many others, but it is one. Anybody who's been redeemed by grace ought to be having constantly increasing grace in their own life and then constantly increasing generosity. Why? Because when I was lost, Jesus gave to me. I'll close with this principle. It's principle number five on biblical generosity. When I preach the gospel to myself, I just get this. Biblical generosity was first demonstrated to me by the Lord. I love verse 9. As I studied this passage this week, I've got marks around it. I've highlighted it two or three different colors. And I had a little note that was so worn out, I had to turn my Bible sideways and read it. One of my favorite verses I wrote in my Bible. First month of uh, 2014, I wrote that in there. One of my favorite verses. Here it is. He reminds them, doesn't he? You know what he's doing? He's preaching the gospel to them. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. Where did he become poor? On the cross. He, he became poor, listen, at the condescension when he came and was born into a dirty stable and walked around. He said the birds of the air have nests the foxes have holes but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head he became poor but he became real poor at the cross when stripped of his independent right to exercise his deity and I have to word that correctly he didn't strip himself of being God but of his right to exercise his power to independently exercise his rights as God. Listen, he became sin for you and me. The just for the unjust. He emptied himself of his right to act as God, took upon himself all your sin and all mine, every dirty, wicked, nasty thing we've ever done, every evil we've ever committed. He laid aside his crown and took a crown of thorns. He laid aside his scepter and took a cross. Oh, how gracious our Lord. Oh, how rich he was. And yet for your sake he became poor. But Paul answers it and says, why? that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Think of it. You know what? Paul is reminding them of the gospel. When I preach the gospel to myself, you know, when I'm in the flesh, <laughs> I could quote a song right here, but I'm not going to do it. My wife's going to know, please don't. <laughs> She's like, 
I want to see a bum on the street and I want to say, get a job. You're lazy. See somebody with a sign that says, we'll work for food. You know what I want to say? That's what we all do. Isn't it? <laughs> Anybody just give you money? We, we all work for food, right? We'll work for food. But that's the flesh. I preach the gospel to myself and I remind myself that I was a beggar with no hope and nowhere to go. And like nothing else ever could do, the gospel instills in me a heart for the downcast, the poverty-stricken, and those who are in need of mercy. How? Well, when I see people who are materially poor, if I preach the gospel to myself and slow my old rotten flesh down, <laughs> I can instantly feel a kinship with them. Why? For they are, they are physically what I was spiritually when my heart was closed to Jesus Christ. I'm tempted to say all the time, well, they're in that condition because of sin. So was I. Yeah, maybe the last time I helped somebody, maybe they're even unkind when I try to help them. They demand more. But I too have been spiteful to God when He only sought to help me. Perhaps... If I help someone that's down and out, they're even thankless or even abuse the kindness. I give them 10 bucks and they don't go buy a sandwich. They go buy alcohol. I did see one guy a while back who had a sign that said, why lie? Need a beer. I gave him five bucks <laughs> just for his honesty. What if they do that? Well, if I give them money, they're going to... I'm not going out of here and saying... I'm not saying go out of here. I'm just saying what's the gospel producing in your life. There's all kinds of responses to this now. Listen to me. Perhaps they're thankless and even abuse the kindness that I show to them or a gift that I give to them. If I preach the gospel to myself, I'd be reminded how many times have I been thankless and used what God has given to me to serve my own selfish desires. Perhaps a poverty-stricken person... Perhaps, if I'm generous, they'll be blessed and changed as a result of some kindness I should show. If so, God be praised for His grace through me. But even if they walk away unchanged by my kindness, I can still rejoice over the opportunity that I had to love others as Christ loved me. You see, here's the deal. When I preach the gospel to myself, the gospel reminds me daily, in a lot of ways, a thousand ways, of the spiritual poverty into which I was born and of the staggering, immense generosity of Christ towards me. How blessed we are if we know Christ. Amen? How much more are we blessed In addition to that, if, if we have anything above our means with which we can help others. That's why Christians have historically built hospitals. 
That's why you go in all these towns, you'll see a Presbyterian or Baptist hospital or something. That's why we've always tried to help the poor. That's why humans value. Uh, that's why humans matter because we, we say they have value regardless of the color of their skin or how rich or poor because they're made in the image of a triune God. And when I was lost and down and out, he came to me and he helped me. Therefore, as one who has received, God make me one who will give. Let's pray. Lord, your spirit and your word have examined us today. And in so many ways, Lord, I am so guilty, Lord. My flesh can rise up within me in a second and, and just look at people with disdain. I'm so glad. What I want to say today, Lord, is I'm so glad when you looked at me and I was down and out and lost and hopeless, I'm glad you didn't respond to me the way I respond to some people. So, Lord, help us to preach the gospel to ourselves. May your spirit and may your word produce in us a willingness as we give ourselves to you first. That's what's important. May you then produce in us a willingness to be as our Lord is and was to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Could you stand and sing with me during this invitation time? Maybe the Lord's Spirit has convicted you and you just say, oh man, God spoke right to me. I invite you to come forward, just kneel and pray or I'll be here to meet with some of you. I'm by myself, Tony and Ryan are out of town today, but I'll pray with you anything at all. If you need Christ, you want to know more about a relationship with Him, please. Whatever you do, just let the Word of God and the Spirit of God speak to your heart now. And so let's get in a mental frame of mind. Jesus, keep me near the cross. What does that mean for us? That means looking at Him who had to die for me so I could be rich. He who became poor and free from all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Oh my goodness, let's take a trip to the foot of the cross. Let's stand there and see him in our hearts, minds, and see what emotions his dying body and suffering produces in our hearts and then what it should produce in our lives in this week.
amen. I want to thank you for, for being part of the service today. Let me get you guys to come up here and stand. We're going to make Dee even stand up here <laughs> for a while. She needs to stand. And uh, Kenny, let me have that, please, sir. I was messing with Kenny. He's one of the best friends I got in the world. I said, just get me the card and get it on up here. And then he's fooling around over there with me, trying to switch. <laughs> won't put a new card on for he even gave it to me. I, listen, I could forget my, my wife's name in front of everybody <laughs> up here. I love that guy. He came by early this morning to give me a gift, and that's a blessing to me. But, uh, Aubrey, we are thankful for you, honey. Are you okay? Are you nervous? She gets a little nervous in front of people. She has accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior, and <laughs> so we're excited about that. We love you, honey. And we want, if um, you would, just to stand here for a minute, let folks come by and just speak to y'all. What a blessed, what a blessed day, amen? amen. And so, uh, just kind of come around for form a line that way. Those of you who want to, and speak to them, and just say congratulations to her. Now, I'm going to ask, who will pray for us and uh, close us? Bobby, you have a microphone. Will you pray for us, brother? I'm going to get out to the front porch and try to greet some guests. But you speak to one another now before you go. If there's somebody here that you don't know, remember to speak to them, okay? Let's be friendly, and we're a church family, and we want, we want you as part of this family. We really mean that. And then let's go out and show the kindness that God has shown us this week. It'll make a lot of difference. If there's one thing this nation and this world needs, it's some grace and some kindness and some understanding and forbearance. Amen. Bobby, pray for us, brother. Those that we come in contact with. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.